News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, we are taking a look at the top searched vehicles of this year. Auto Trader has released those numbers, looking at what Canadians are searching for when it comes to those vehicles. Jody Lyo joins us now, editor in chief of Auto Trader. Jody, thank you so much for being with us. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. Well, interesting findings and a shift away from luxury vehicles. So, what did you find? What as far as British Columbians and what they're searching for? That's a great question. So typically, luxury cars are very popular in BC. Last year, um, Auto Trader's top search list, there were six luxury vehicles. This year, there's only four, which I thought was very interesting. And what vehicles then are people searching for the most? So in BC, the top search vehicles are the Ford F-150, Porsche 911, Ford Mustang, Toyota RAV4, and BMW 3 Series kind of rounds out the top five. And were there any that previously have been searched for and been quite popular that they've just kind of disappeared as far as the searches? Yeah, so last year uh, in 10th place was BMW M cars, you know, very luxurious, very high performing. Uh, This year it was bumped off the list and the Honda Civic uh, went up in DC's most searched list. And what do you think it has caused this shift? So I think economic pressures were very top of mind for everybody in 2022 um, with inventory shortages and high gas prices and the high cost of living. Um, Our data kind of shows that Canadians kind of shifted their focus to more economical options and more fuel efficient options this year. Uh, Even though the Ford F-150 was at the top of the list? Yeah, because the Ford F-150 is consistently the most top, the, the top searched vehicle on our list. You know, Auto Trader has been collecting this data for eight years now, and every single year the Ford F-150 has, has been number one. And what about the shift when you talk about uh, the, the uh, economics of it? Uh, people may be looking for more uh, economical uh, vehicles. Uh, did you see a shift or as far as electric vehicles or that kind of uh, people looking for those? Absolutely. 2022 was a huge year for electric vehicle searches. You know, when gas prices surged in March, um, EV searches on AutoTrader also skyrocketed. You know, they went 89% uh, year over year. Um, And so far this year, EV searches have gone up on AutoTrader 148%, (laughs) which is massive. And I think, you know, those high gas prices and, uh, you know, growing environmental concerns have really Um, inspired Canadians to maybe look for more efficient options. (laughs) Uh, You mentioned as well uh, the supply issues. Uh, And we know uh, that in Vancouver, the international car show that was supposed to be taking place, it has been cancelled because of the supply issues, because of the shortages. Is that having an impact, do you think, as well, on what people are looking for, knowing uh, that there are long waits in some scenarios? Absolutely. So our data shows that uh, a lot of car shoppers are increasingly willing to buy a used car over a new vehicle because they understand that, you know, the wait times for new vehicles are a bit longer due to those shortages. Um, But our data also shows that, you know, inventory has kind of been climbing back up um, and vehicle used vehicle prices have been dropping slightly, which is something we we haven't seen a lot of, um, but it has been dropping. And so I think a lot of Canadians have been 
looking into used cars is another way to kind of help their finances. Although we've also been hearing so much about used vehicles and the price of used vehicles because of the shortages, uh, probably a little bit higher than what people might want to pay or, or what they were expecting. Um, yeah, our data shows that, you know, we, we publish a quarterly price index, but um, there has been the national average price of a used vehicle has actually dropped uh, 1.2% after hitting peak levels in June. So the prices are slowly decreasing. Um, and I think a lot of Canadians are, are kind of understanding that compared to a new vehicle, there are still a lot of bargains to be had. Right. And that's uh, that's some good news for people who are in the market that uh, maybe uh, coming off of that peak uh, part or that peak area with the, the price of used vehicles. Do you anticipate, or I, it might be impossible to know, but do you anticipate kind of that trend of the prices correcting will continue? I think it depends a lot on um, new car vehicle production. And like our data shows that it has kind of leveled out and it's getting better. Um, I mean, we're not economists, so we can't really <laughs> know if, if used pro- car prices are going to drop significantly. But, you know, our data shows that it's kind of been correcting um, and we're seeing it get kind of back to normal. Uh, which is a good thing, definitely, and, and shows as well with the searches and what people are looking for. Uh, any other trends that stick out to you as far as what you heard uh, and heard from Canadians in this survey? Yeah, I think for me, the most interesting trend was EVs. It was a really big year for EVs. So not only were there more EVs available on the auto trader marketplace, but with those high gas prices, um, it was really interesting to see those searches just skyrocket to a level that we've never seen before. So that was just really cool. And did you see the trend there as well when moving away from luxury? Were people moving away as well from luxury EVs and trying to find perhaps those more, the more economical or the, the more affordable types? Well, our data shows that people aren't necessarily abandoning luxury entirely. They just became more interested in economical options, but there's still lots of luxury vehicles on our top 10 most searched vehicles. And I think it's because what people are searching for isn't necessarily what they're buying. You know, I always use the auto trader marketplace to kind of look for cars that I could buy if I won the lottery or something. So I think a lot of Canadians do the same thing. That makes a lot of sense. And just kind of seeing what's out there and uh, dreaming perhaps about what exactly if you won the lottery or, or what it might be like to have that vehicle. Exactly. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Jody. Great to chat with you this morning and taking a look at some of the survey results. Thank you again so much for your time. Thanks for having me. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, we now know, according to BC Health officials, six children have died from a flu-related illness this season. The BC Centre for Disease Control putting out some more information on that yesterday. We're joined now by Dr. Bonnie Henry, our provincial health officer in BC. Dr. Henry, thank you so much for being with us. Good morning. Uh, Good morning to you. Can you talk a little bit more? I know the statement that you put out yesterday talks about the death associated with influenza in children to be very rare and rare in school-aged children and teens. So if it is rare, why are we seeing such a high number at this point? Yeah, and that's one of the really important questions that we're trying to understand. Um, It started uh, late last week when some of our pediatrician colleagues, particularly from BC Children's, reached out to BC CDC and myself because of their concerns that they were hearing about more severe cases in children. 
So we've been trying to uh, put together exactly uh, who's been affected and where we're seeing it and trying to get a sense of whether it is because so many uh, young people haven't been exposed to influenza for the last few years, which means there's an increased risk of a large number of people being infected, which we've seen, and it's happening so quickly, or whether there's an increased risk on an individual basis this year. And we still don't have the answer to that question, but it is, uh, it is very challenging and it reflects the fact that there's a lot of influenza circulating right now and the importance of getting the best protection we have, which is the, getting that vaccine. In the past, we've generally talked about flu shots for the elderly, for the most vulnerable in our population. It seems new that we're now saying that young children should be vaccinated for the flu. Do you think this is the norm going forward as far as that? And and how do you convince parents then to adopt that and to vaccinate such young children? Yeah, so we've always known that influenza has the most effects on the very young and, and, and the elderly. And for different reasons, and for young people, it's often because they've not been exposed to influenza before. And the, the first time you get an infection, um, it can be more severe. And for older people, it's often because our immune system doesn't work as well as we get older and the vaccines are not as effective as we get older. So there, it has always been important, and it's important. And we have different types of influenza seasons, and we see that if we have a lot of H3N2, which is the one that uh, unfortunately we're seeing this year, we do get more severe disease in both uh, young and, and older people. But we don't ever see or we've not seen six deaths at this point. Here we are on December 9th before. And I know, I know, like you said, we don't know if it's because people haven't been exposed to the flu. Uh, but parents are going to be wanting those answers and wanting to know why we're seeing this increase and if their kids are at risk. Well, absolutely. And, and that's why we're trying to understand what the pattern is. The thing that we're seeing that's different this year is that the flu season has started early, quite a bit earlier. Usually we don't see it really peak until into January, February. So it is unusual to see it at this time of year, but that's because we're seeing so much influenza rapidly at this time of year. And if we look back at what happened in New Zealand, Australia, we saw that as well, that they had a very rapid increase and, and a, a peak, but then it, it leveled off. So we're hoping we're going to see that too. But importantly, we can make a difference in, in how long this lasts by getting vaccinated. And there'll be many, many opportunities this weekend across the province to do just that. What do you say to parents whose children are sick? Maybe it's the flu, maybe it's something else, but we know there have been waits of 10 hours, sometimes even more at BC Children's Hospital. Uh, We're hearing that there's also a lack of ICU beds at Children's Hospital. What should parents do in that scenario? I think parents need to be reassured that if they, if their child is sick, they can contact their healthcare provider, they can call 811 to get advice, and if they need to go to the emergency room, not to hesitate to do that. They'll be triaged, and the BC Children's, for example, has put in place a process to be able to rapidly triage children so that they're able to get the care they need. And uh, we have those measures in place across the province. So if you have those concerns, call 811 and get the advice and go to the emergency room if it's needed.
can you also reassure parents and British Columbians that the information about this will be more forthcoming? I know we're now told we're going to get reports of flu-related deaths on a more regular basis in BC. But in the cases of these kids, I mean, two of the families went public before we even heard from the BC Centre for Disease Control before your statement yesterday. And there, there have been some concerns about why it took several days for this information to be released. Yeah, so, uh, and, you know, each of these cases is is a, such a tragic case, and I know the families want answers about it, and we do too. And it was late last week that we started to put in place that uh, we put out a request or, uh, that all physicians report to their local public health um, any severe illnesses so that we're aware of them, but then particularly any deaths that happen in children. We don't have a system where we, we follow that on a regular basis, um, so this is different. It's enhanced surveillance more than what we usually do. So we had a system in place, as you know, for COVID, but uh, we don't generally follow influenza in the same way. So this is new. We've put it in place and we'll be reporting out as we get more information. And it was a little uncertain, um, certainly uh, this week, whether we were talking about the same cases or not. So we had to reach out to individual physicians and, and collect that information. We're still looking at, you know, is it influenza itself that's causing this or is there other things going on? And we know that for some of these children and some of what we've heard in the media as well, um, that the children have secondary bacterial infections, which can be associated with influenza, but that is what can cause more severe illness. So it's the bacterial infection, though. Would they have gotten that without having the influenza? It, it, sometimes, yes. We do know that uh, the things like invasive group A strep and streptococcus is a bacteria that most of us have in our skin and on our... But sometimes it can cause more severe illnesses and it can be related to uh, a cold, it can be related to influenza, or it can just happen on its own. And we, we're seeing that uh, arise in some of these types of infections in the UK, for example, and in other parts of, uh, of Canada and North America. So these are things that we, we don't have the answers to right now, but we do know that it is absolutely associated sometimes with influenza and that we can protect people by getting vaccinated. All right, Dr. Bonnie Henry, thank you for your time this morning. Appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you very much. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, we know that BC residents, we do love the great outdoors and the many beautiful parts of this province. But how are BC residents feeling when it comes to making sure we keep nature and in some cases reverse nature loss? Well, joining me to talk more about some very interesting survey results is Nancy Newhouse, Regional Vice President for the Nature Conservancy of Canada in BC. Nancy, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. I know this was a survey that went right across the country, but what did you find as far as BC residents and their top concerns when it comes to making sure we are preserving nature? Yeah, it was uh, maybe not surprising, but certainly re- reaffirming of, of what we know to be true about how much uh, British Columbians and Canadians care about nature and understand the deep connection between nature and climate and uh, really ecosystem health and well-being. So, you know, for instance, 93% of people in BC say that we need to move faster to curb the effects of climate change to protect our communities. 
And when they say moving faster then, was it specific or did it go into more detail on, on in what areas or where people had the, the most concerns? Uh, well, there is a variety of questions. So they also talked about, you know, 92% being worried about the decline of wildlife species, 87% feeling that nature conservation is really a tangible way to address climate change and biodiversity loss. And there is this um, concern, 84%, that are worried about future generations not having access to nature close to where they live. So people are definitely um, thinking about nature, thinking about what it means for not only right now, but for the future. And I think that's where Nature Conservancy of Canada um, really shines in, in the approaches that we take. We really believe that it's a it'll take a whole of society um, looking at this challenge and working towards uh, change. And the work that we do, I think, is, is really um, inspiring because it's, it's in communities and it's uh, making a difference on the land, both in conserving, you know, individual parcels of land and working on restoration as well. And has the Nature Conservancy then, when you talk about that, how has, how has it been then as far as making those, those parcels or when you talk about putting land aside or putting it into the Conservancy, have you been able to kind of grow that base and, and do more of that? Absolutely. And we're, we're committed to, you know, doubling our own, uh, the work of our impact over the next eight years to 2030 and working with partners across Canada to our shared goal of getting to 30% of Canada's lands and waters protected by 2030, which is a, a global goal um, and is really the focus of the COP15 conference that's happening right now in Montreal. Um, so yeah, we, we have made good progress and we continue to do so. I mean, there's some on the restoration front, some really interesting examples. Um, we've been working with uh, the Haida, Haida Nation um, at Gambus Plagi and, and just replanted an area with 20,000 cedar trees. Um, in Creston, we've been doing uh, wetland restoration. And within a year um, of of doing some recreation of, of wetlands. We had northern leopard frogs coming back into those pools. Um, so there's there's a number of uh, sort of tangible examples of really working towards this building a thriving world together. I understand, too, these survey results. Not a huge surprise. A lot of British Columbians worried about the decline of types of, of wildlife species. How does the Nature Conservancy work with that? Well, we work uh, sort of an interesting, what I find is, is powerful about Nature Conservancy's work is that we're a national organization, so we have that strength. But we really focus on working in community and understanding what's important to the people where they live. And so um, we've got a variety of different projects. Um, some are, you know, close to, to cities and towns and some are more remote, but they're always looking at um, how people interact on the, on the land. So the lands are generally open for people to come and walk, for Indigenous peoples to practice um, traditional uses, um, and so when we look at these results, we can 
we can see that providing um, access and conservation is in- incredibly important, um, and it just reinforces our need and desire to to keep driving these um, positive changes. All right. Well, Nancy, thank you so much for joining us and for talking more about some of these survey results and what is clearly very important for BC residents. I appreciate your time this morning. Thank you so much. Have a good day. This is Mornings with Simi. It's not often a housing complex gets this much attention, but we are talking about what is happening in the district of Saanich. And the new council there has unanimously given the green light to a nine-unit townhouse project. And it's what it doesn't have that is getting a lot of attention parking. It's the first of its kind in that area and the council is saying that if it all goes ahead and works there could be more like this. Is this what we are going to see perhaps in Saanich and other municipalities? Well, Eric Doherty joins us now Principal of Ecopath Planning as well, a registered city planner. Eric, thank you so much for being with us. Good to be here. What are your thoughts on building a housing unit like this that has nine units on one lot, but no parking? Um, I think this is what we need to be doing. Uh, this is uh, this is what the future looks like if we're going to meet our climate targets. Um, and if we're going to provide um, affordable housing and transportation for people. Is it fair, though, or is it reasonable to think that there are there are going to be people who are are not having vehicles and are able to do that and get to where they need to go without having a vehicle? Uh, it's fair to, to think that on places like this, which is right next to a good bus line um, within easy walking distance of the um, of the hospital, uh, right on um, good uh, like multiple good bike and roll routes and um, yeah, walkable to groceries uh, in those kinds of places. Absolutely. And when we're, we're talking about a unit like this, how much would it change? Do you think, or does it have an impact on the price of housing or the price of a unit? If we omit the parking? Um, well, it's, it's difficult to say how you, how that sort of adds up for the, the, you know, the person buying the unit. Um, but if you um, if you look at the cost of providing parking, it generally costs uh, on the order of forty or fifty thousand dollars to provide one parking spot. Hmm. So it's um, you know it's not it's not the whole you know uh, affordability um, uh, question, uh, but it's a big chunk. Um, but more importantly, owning a car is very expensive. It's really difficult to even old own an older car for less than $5,000 a year. Right. No, that's uh, an interesting point. Um, When we look at this particular unit as well, and I know uh, that uh, I understand there's already a waiting list for people who are interested in these homes and that the developer is going to kind of match people and it's matching people that are already living car free, that they might be ones that are at the top of the list and and be the ones who have access to this housing. Uh, is, Is that a new way of looking at it that when we were talking about people getting housing, it it's people that already are living a certain type of lifestyle? 
Um, it, yeah, it, it is a new way of thinking because in the in the past, uh, the the thinking was that you had to provide parking for uh, just that it would be inevitable that everybody would end up with parking and with a car and use the parking. But where I live, you can see the uh, um, you can see the results of that. Uh, you can go into a uh, into one of the apartment units near me on Hillside. I'm quite I'm quite close to this unit um, uh, to this area where the where this townhouse development is going in. And you walk into the parking lots after a snowfall, and it's been there for two days, and the majority of the parking spots have not been used. Hmm. And so it's like it's we, we've built all this parking that's not being used at all. What about the issue of or the idea of electric vehicles? And there's certainly been a push as well for people switching to electric vehicles, new builds, having charging stations and accommodating those. Uh, that Would that not also kind of fit into the same lifestyle that this type of housing is is targeting? Yeah, um, absolutely. And this, this unit comes, this development comes with a, uh, a moto car share uh, car, an electric one, I believe, with an on-street charger. Um, I'm not sure if the detail, whether they're doing that or if that's just already in the neighborhood and planned. But um, electric cars are very expensive to buy, but they're quite inexpensive to run. So they really fit well with um, people who are sharing a car rather than owning a car. The problem with, with electric cars in the city is that so many of us um, that do own cars, uh, you know, my family, we've got a car, and um, electric cars are very expensive to buy, but people don't use them very much in the city. Um, like for in-city trips, like our car leaves the driveway a couple times a week. And it makes no sense to own a car if you're only using it, um, you know, 10 kilometers a week. Right. Um, do you think that a development like this, it's already getting uh, some of the neighbors are a little worried about it, not only about the, the no parking, but the size of the building and, and putting the nine units on one lot. Is it a matter of kind of getting used to that and understanding that this isn't going to be every development in the future, but there are going to be developers that are looking at different ways of doing things and more creative ways of, of building housing? Yeah, this is something that um, the region, Victoria, Saanich, is has been doing for a long time, is increasing the density of uh, housing in the places with good transit accessibility. And that is the, that's been the future for the last 30 years. The difference here is that we're not providing a whole bunch of parking that isn't being used very much. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's the, the future, and I think it's also really worthwhile to recognize that the commercial, the, the provincial climate plan calls for us to drive 25% less by 2030. So that's a big change that's being called for, and this one development in a neighborhood that doesn't have parking is only a, like it's a small incremental change, um, whereas we're you know, our government is proposing that to meet our climate targets, we need to make a really substantial change that's going to result in an awful lot of empty parking spots. All right, uh, Eric Doherty, we'll leave it there for today. But thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Have a good one. This is Mornings with Simi.
This is an update to a story we first learned about several months ago, and it had to do with a family forced to pay for part of a cancer care drug treatment. And that happened, went on for several months with the family pleading with the government to bring in the drug protocol under protocols that are covered by the B.C. government. Well, that has changed, but there are still many questions about how this happened and others who might be in a similar scenario. Matthew Atkins joins us again to talk more about this. Matthew, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. We are talking, of course, about the drug treatment for your wife, Carrie Atkins. Before we get into that, though, how is Carrie doing? Uh, she's sleeping. She's uh, <laughs> She sleeps a lot these days, and it's treatment week this week, so she's she's currently uh, sleeping and will be for most of the day. So that's just kind of one of the side effects. That's how it how it goes, so. All right. Take us back for people that aren't familiar with this, with your story and what was happening. Tell us a bit about the drug protocol and how you and Carrie were paying for it. Uh, sure. There's um, basically in in BC. There's there's several options when you become a metastatic cancer patient. There's there's several lines of treatment that are approved treatments, um, and, and there's two for for her her type of uh, what they call her two positive breast cancer. Uh, unfortunately, the first line of treatment she wasn't able to take because she uh, had a negative reaction, so they moved her straight on to the second one. Um, now, the backbone of all that is a drug called Herceptin, which has been used and funded in BC for well over 20 years. It's it's sort of the, you know, the the side dish that goes with all of the other drug combinations when you're being treated for this kind of cancer. Um, and and the the problem is that the 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 treatments that are available don't deal with brain tumors, which can develop in, from what I understand, about 50% of people. Uh, she is one of those people who developed brain tumors. Uh, so she had them treated with uh, surgeries and with radiation, but there's obviously only so much of that that you can do to a human brain. Um, so her oncologist recommended that we move on to a treatment called HER2-CLIMB, which was brand new and developed uh, in part here in BC. This, this is one of the places where it was clinically trialed with amazing results and does cross over into your brain and help prevent those those tumors, um, which, again, became that same Herceptin that we'd been getting all along, plus two brand new drugs, one called uh, Tucatnib or, or Tukaiza, depending on how you want to think of it, uh, and another one called capecitabine. And this is an amazing combination that, that does prevent those tumors and so therefore, you know, does a, an amazing job of, of prolonging people's lives if they're in that situation. Uh, so we were prescribed uh, that combination and told to go on that, which um, the, the Tukaiza and the capecitabine, because they're brand new, they were in negotiations for funding in Canada. That's a federal thing. It, my understanding is new drugs become uh, federally um, federally um, negotiated for and then made available to provinces. So those two new drugs were in that process. So we knew that might be a challenge getting them, but both of those drug companies stepped forward and said, we understand the situation people are in. We're going to give them to you for free. No problem. We got your back. So we went, oh, okay, this is amazing. We're going we're gonna to be great. And then the government of BC stepped in and said, sorry, you can't have the Herceptin because it's not part of a uh, uh, protocol that is actually officially rolled out yet. 
until it's been through the process of, of negotiation and gone through the federal process and made available here in BC, there is no technical um, HER2 climb protocol. So if you want the Herceptin that you need to stay alive, you're going to have to pay for it. Um, so that's how we got into that. Uh, we, we, we asked for some help from that drug company at the recommendation of, of the, the health department of BC. Um, they obviously had very little incentive to give us the drug for free when they already sell it to the BC government and we have fridges full of it in BC cancer. Uh, so they, the best they would do is they said they would give it to us at 50% off, which uh, worked out to about $1,250 a month for us. Uh, which, you know, is, is a hard enough thing to come up with at the best of times in, in you know, when you live in, in BC. Uh, but when you're in the middle of COVID and you're in the middle of cancer, which is dramatically decreasing anybody's ability to work, um, that becomes a real a real problem. And so we, we started begging for help. We begged our MLA with really no help. Uh, we begged Adrian Dix. I cornered him in an airport one day and went, man, I need your help. I need your help. Uh, we wrote countless letters and made phone calls to the premier's office. Um, and all that we got back, um, other than explanations of how the system works, um, other than that, all we got back was a very nice note from Adrian Dix saying, we recognize the situation, we recognize the financial burden, we recognize all those things, and we're not going to help. Hmm. So our frustration was, you know, we have this drug sitting in the fridge. It's bought and paid for it's Herceptin, HER2, like it, the, the HER2 positive cancer. It's in the name, the HER. That's like if, if it wasn't for HER, who are we saving it for? Um, so for 14 months, we begged friends and family and, and had people start a GoFundMe for us to come up with the money to, to pay for this drug. And then, and then one day our oncologist said, okay, the magic day's come and it's now funded. And we went, okay, is there, you know, like, like this has got to be life changing for a lot of a lot of people, and it's just sort of been rolled out very quietly. Like it finally bubbled to the surface of somebody's stack of pages, and they just rubber stamped it, and on we go. And uh, yeah, it just seems a little odd and a little frustrating. So right, so it go. must have been though. You must have been so pleased to see that it had been approved and it was now covered. But you also shelled out what it must have been close to twenty thousand dollars. Yeah, by our best estimates, and, and we have the receipts downstairs because every three weeks they, they would phone us and ask us if we had room on our credit card to, to you know, put this through. Um, yeah, it was it was close to it was just about seventeen thousand um, dollars. So you know, as I've as I've described it before, it's you know if if somebody's punching you in the face over and over again, the last time they do it, it feels like a relief. But at some point, you kind of go, "Hang on a second, why was why was that happening? Surely there's a better way to deal with this." You know, when when what we had been asking for, you know, we we recognize that that when protocols aren't aren't uh, approved yet or 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 funded and rolled out yet that's that's an issue but for that one particular drug which is normally funded we had been asking for uh, for just sort of like a temporary relief of that for for uh you know some help just paying for that one that's always paid for and that the, the frustrating part is, you know, I, I understand the problem. What I don't understand is why nobody seemed to be that interested in helping solve the problem, just explaining to us what the problem was, if that makes sense. You no, know? It, it does for sure. And I know part of the reason that you wanted to talk about this again is that even though now you've, um, to, to use your, uh, your phrase, you're not being punched in the face anymore, there are likely others who are. 
Oh, well, there are, and we definitely know that. Uh, you know, one of the things when you go through an experience like this, you start to make friends and people come out of the woodwork. And, and my wife is part of several, you know, support groups and that sort of thing. So we, we know a fair number of people who are in, in the same situation, either through the same drug combination or other drug combinations. And to be honest, some of them have it much, much worse than we did financially. Uh, you know, they're they're being put in very, very awkward positions. Um, and unfortunately, there doesn't seem to be anybody in the government whose job it is to talk to those people and help them navigate this. Um, you just kind of send the emails and, and make phone calls that you leave on on voice messages at the premier's office that just never get returned. And if they do, it's months later with a form letter that came off somebody's desk that just explains to you the process of how drugs are funded when it's like, well, we know that because we explained that to you when we were laying out our problem asking for help. But there there doesn't seem to be an, a sort of an advocate or anybody who's whose role it is to step in and sort of help us navigate that and, and figure out what we can do to, to try and solve the problem. It, it The focus doesn't seem to be really on solving the problem. The focus seems to be on, you know, dealing with the dealing with the paperwork of people who are asking for help. Right. That was my experience. Yeah. And you that would like to. Said, oh, sorry, go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say that having been said, I, I do also want to make sure that this phone call today is not just about me complaining about the government because, you know, I, I also want to recognize that we've been in this system for a number of years now going through this uh, since her very first diagnosis. Um, and we have dealt with wonderful, wonderful people at BC Cancer. Uh, we've dealt with, you know, our oncologist is, I don't have that much oncologist experience, but I think she is exemplary. She's been just absolutely amazing. Uh, so many people have it, so many turns. They're wonderful people doing great work. And I, and, and I'm, I, I want to make sure that we recognize how great that that part of the system is um, and and how frustrated most of those people were along with us, you know, not really understanding why this was who this was happening and why nobody was able to do anything to, to solve this problem. So. Well, Matthew, I thank you for speaking out about this and raising these issues and maybe it will lead to a change at least in, in how drugs are approved or how it's communicated to families so they don't have to make those very tough financial choices. But we'll leave it there for today. Thank you again so much for chatting with us. Thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it. This is Mornings with Simi. Introducing Distractify by McCain, a fry dispenser that ends uncomfortable conversations with fries. We just got back from seeing an intimacy coach. Oh, fries. Smart technology listens for keywords and phrases like crypto, still single, when are you going to get a real job, and dispenses fries. So you can spend more time eating fries together. And less time dealing with this. Let's go around the table and tell everyone who we're going to vote for. I'll go first. And this. It's not a pyramid scheme. It's just a bunch of... Also this. All right, don't cancel me. But is it... Oh. And all of this. Can I vape in here? Why are you always on the phone? Why don't you... Oh! All right, that is a real ad for Distract-A-Fry. And this is the latest... uh, 
well, gimmick, you could say, put out by McCain. The idea being when there is an uncomfortable conversation starting, there are keywords that the smart distractify recognizes. And when it hears those keywords, it shoots out some French fries. So people just eat fries and don't have that uncomfortable, uncomfortable conversation. Yes, that is actually a thing. But that got us to thinking about uncomfortable conversations and how we communicate. And joining us to talk more about that is Jeff Hancock, founding director of the Stanford Social Media Lab and the Harry and Norman Chandler Professor of Communication at Stanford University. Thank you so much for taking some time with us today. Well, good morning. It's my pleasure. And, uh, you know, once you shared that Distractify thing with me, I was like trying to get it on Amazon. Really upset that I can't get it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there you go. It's going to be a big hit uh, this holiday season. Uh, Tell me a little bit, uh, talk if you can a bit about conversation and and more kind of the AI mediated conversation and the impact that's having when it comes to our ability ability to communicate and talk to one another. Well, you know, with the, the holidays coming up, uh, those big family conversations, those big family dinners are, are more and more in people's minds. And uh, most people have really, they're really nervous about those difficult conversations. And, um, you know, one positive thing uh, that we find in the research is that when you have those hard conversations with folks, um, especially family members about those important things, um, it ends up being much more positive than people expect. So despite the distractifies potential, um, it's really important to have those those difficult conversations. Um, in terms of technology, it's it's kind of amazing, you know, how far away is Distractify? A lot of tech right now is working on trying to analyze human language, and then when it recognizes certain patterns, we'll sort of jump in and try to either suggest something or, or um, offer some language for somebody to use. So I think AI in particular is about to play a, a lot bigger role in human-to-human communication, for sure. And what concerns should we have, do you think, about that and it playing a larger role? Well, you know, one thing uh, that probably a lot of your listeners have seen uh, is smart replies. That's a form of AI where, you know, I go to send you an email and it'll suggest three things I could say, like, sounds great, uh, sounds good, and maybe no, right? So there's these three things. And um, there's billions of these sent uh, every day. And uh, my research group, along with some other collaborators, have found that they're different than what we would normally write. They tend to be shorter. They tend to be a lot more positive and and a little simpler. And so, you know, the joke we say is that AI is making us a little bit more dumber, uh, but also a little bit maybe happier sounding. So there's real changes happening that most of us don't even pay attention to. Uh, there are scenarios, I think, though, in in that exact example, if somebody does one of those smart replies to you and you kind of think, mm, that doesn't sound like that person, and you might even think they probably used that option right. of the smart reply. But do you think as, as it gets used more and more, are we going to lose that? That's something that, that we're definitely worried about is that, you know, we, we either stop paying attention to that or we start thinking that that person is using tech to communicate with us and, and that could undermine trust. It could undermine like effort. You know, I, I don't know if you ever have this experience where you get all these happy birthday notes, um, say through Facebook or, uh, or any other social media. And I remember when it first happened, I was like, oh my God, I feel so loved. I'm getting all these nice, you know, happy birthday notes. And then after a few years, it's like, well, I guess the computer is just telling them to send that and is even composing that message. And I've always been thinking, like, oh, does, do I, does it still feel the same that, that, like, a machine is helping them 
remind me. And I got to be honest with you, I still love it when I get all those, you know, happy birthdays from friends I haven't heard from in a while. So uh, I think the the research is still open on that. Right. The best way to find out, though, your true friends is put a fake birthday on those social media sites. And the ones that will, will, will catch that are the ones that know you the best. Oh, that is so devious of you. I love it. <laughs> not, not that I would do that, of course, no, but no, it is no, a way no, to no. weed out to people who are just clicking and saying, oh, happy birthday to you. Um, right. I love it. What about, though, when we talk about those difficult conversations, does it also, like you said, it kind of will steer us in a different direction? Uh, they are uncomfortable and difficult, but they're yeah. also important sometimes to have them, aren't they? Absolutely. I mean, our family is, uh, you know, one of the most important resources we have when we're facing a difficult decision. So difficult topics can be everything from, you know, religious issues, political, money is a huge stress uh, as the population ages, um, you know, thinking about end-of-life care and, and those sort of really big, hard uh, things. My students in college are often worried about what their parents are going to say about their job choices or their, their romantic partners. Um, and, but having your family involved and, 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 and aware of what's going on can be really valuable. So um, we find again and again that people are, like, really nervous. They're worried it's going to be horrible. And then when they do have the difficult conversation, it's actually almost always really positive. And especially when family members can try to hold back their initial reaction and just listen, just listening to what our other family members and friends have to say. So um, they're clearly really important. And, and no two families are the same, right? Some people uh, talk about these difficult things all the time. Others, it's much more, more rare. And so it's not like there's one way to do this right. But one thing that AI is starting to be used for in counseling and in executive coaching is providing some initial language that people can use to initiate those hard conversations. Because that's a, like if I were to, you know, what am I going to say? You know, how am I going to start this conversation? Um, sometimes, you know, AI is being used as a tool now to at least give us that initial set of, you know, sentences that we can use just to get the ball rolling. And then once that happens, the hope is that the rest goes all right. And is it so, um, is it advanced to the stage where if AI is helping you and to get that ball rolling, is it helping you in that it picks up on your language and it knows specifically what might work best for you? It's not there yet, um, but that is the goal. So the, you know, just in the last two weeks, um, a newest version of what's called you know, GPT uh, was released that uh, emphasized its abilities as a chatbot. And it's much better than any previous version. I mean, we're really seeing huge advances, but it's still based as a general model. Uh, so it doesn't say look at Jeff Hancock's um, emails and then tailor it for, say, when I talk to my mom, who I'm sitting here looking at. And uh, in the future, that's one of the goals, is that it'll be a personalized chat system that can then sound like Jeff. And even, you know, you can imagine people in sales and marketing, um, they want AI that can not only sound like them, but then also help them sell to this particular company or this particular person. And so that's down the road, but certainly on the agenda. As of right now, it's still pretty general. and does, It won't sound just like me. Right. But do we run the risk then of sitting around the dinner table at the holidays or at a birthday and we all suddenly start sounding like robots instead of oh, ourselves? Totally. I mean, you, you've probably heard somebody that's come back from, say, some counseling or gotten some coaching. And, you know, they say a sentence and it's like, what? That doesn't <laughs> sound like you at all. Um, so, yeah, I think, we'll, I think we'll see that. But it also then, to me, is a... 
it's a sign that this person has gone to some effort to try and like start a hard hard conversation and and to me that's what I should respect and value as the person's gone to the effort to try and come up with a way of starting a topic that they don't know how to do. And so even if it doesn't sound like them, um, I try to take that sort of empathic point of view of like, hey, life is hard. These conversation topics can be really hard and they're giving it a shot. And so I try to try to recognize it from that perspective. All right. Very uh, interesting research. Jeff Hancock, we'll leave it there for today. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. This wasn't a difficult conversation at all. (laughs) Good to know. Excellent.